this evening, and uh, the, the healing of the blind man in this passage of scripture, and we're just going to call it Once Blind, uh, chapter 9, and it's the whole uh, passage, verse 1 to verse 41. And uh, before we look at chapter 9, we're going to look a little bit at uh, Narnia, at the last battle. And uh, in the last battle, there's chapter 13 towards the end of the book, and it's called, this last chapter is called, How the Dwarves Refuse to be Taken In. They refuse to be taken in. And it's a really sad story. Lucy has, uh, all the battle's over and, and things are starting to go well and Narnia is in sight. This, the, Aslan is coming. And it says here, we're just going to read some sections of it. Lucy led the way and soon they could all see the dwarves. But the dwarves were not strolling about or enjoying themselves, although they were no longer tied with cords. Nor were they lying down and having a rest. Instead, they were sitting very close together in a little circle, and they were facing one another. Then the dwarves all cocked their heads, as if they couldn't see anyone. But they were listening hard, and trying to guess by the sound what was happening. Look out, said one of them in a surly voice. Mind where you're going. Don't walk into our faces. All right, said Eustace, indignantly. We're not blind. We've got eyes in our heads. They must be darn good eyes if you can see in here, said the same dwarf whose name was Diggle. In where? asked Edmund. Why, you bonehead, in here, of course, said Diggle. In this pitch black, this pokey, smelly little hole of a stable. Are you blind, said Tyrion? Ain't we all blind in the dark, said Diggle. But it isn't dark, you poor, stupid dwarf, said Lucy. Can't you see? Look up, look around. Can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? How in the name of all humbug can I see what isn't there? And how can I see you any more than you can see me in this pitch darkness? And then skipping a little bit more. Oh, the poor things. This is dreadful, said Lucy. And then she had an idea. She stooped and picked some wild violets. Listen, dwarf, she said. Even if your eyes are wrong, perhaps your nose is all right. Can you smell that? And she leaned across and held the fresh damp flowers to Diggle's ugly nose. But she had to jump back quickly in order to avoid a blow from his hard little fist. None of that, he shouted. How dare you? What do you mean by shoving a lot of filthy stable litter in my face? And then skipping a little bit more. So they're in daylight, but they can't see. There's flowers, but instead of smelling flowers, they smell stable litter. And then we see Aslan a little bit later. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough. But it was clear that they couldn't taste anything properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay. Another said he had got a bit of old turnip. And a third said he'd find a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough. That's a donkey's peanut. Never thought we would come to this. And then skipping a little bit more. Well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And then Aslan says towards the end, their prison is in their minds. Yet they are in that prison. And they are so afraid of being taken in that they can't be taken out. So afraid of being taken in that they can't be taken out. 
And that's what we're going to see here in this uh, passage of Scripture in John chapter 9. And we're going to look at this. Victoria's been teaching the, the kids these big words. And here's our big word for this evening. The word incredulous. And it means that someone is unwilling or unable to believe. And that's what Jesus has been telling these Pharisees since John chapter 5. You're not able to believe. Uh, you don't want to believe. You're not able and you're unwilling to believe the things that I have to say. And in this miracle we're going to look at... It's a lot like the miracle in John chapter 5. There's a man who's broken in some way, and he's been broken for a very long time. There's a pool of water involved, the pool of Bethesda, now the pool of Siloam. And it both take place on the Sabbath day. And both of these miracles are are very similar, and sadly the reactions are very similar uh, as well. Now this is the sixth miracle over all of John's gospel, and it's the second miracle to take place in Jerusalem. So verse 1 to verse 7 tells us uh, a little bit more about what this miracle is. And it starts with Jesus walking past a blind man. And his disciples ask him this question, who, who was the one who sinned? Like, so there was something believed back then, there was a, a, a misunderstanding that the, the, the Jewish people had and that the disciples had that, that someone had suffered in such a way, or someone had sinned in such a way that God made this young man or this man here uh, blind. And, and to be honest with us, there's, there's always been misunderstandings uh, of, of why uh, there's the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. There's always been misunderstandings. And even as Christians, we wrestle with this. When something goes wrong in our lives, one of the first things we ask is, where are you, God? And his response, if we would listen, is, I'm right here in the midst of it with you. But instead, we have him as a, a faraway person. I've heard Christians say that uh, it feels like when I'm praying to God, that I'm praying to a brass sky and he's not hearing You know what God actually says? I'm in your heart. I'm right here in the midst with you. How can I be a brass sky away when I'm right uh, here? But we've always wrestled with this issue of, uh, of suffering. Why do we suffer? And since suffering is a result of the fall of man... That's why we have suffering in the world, because of the fall of man. Uh, but we keep going a little bit further, and these people begin to logically conclude that all suffering must be a result of a specific sin. So it's like Job's comforters. When Job's struggling through everything he's lost, and instead of saying, Job, we're so sorry that you're going through these things, it's, no, Job has sinned in some heinous way, and God's trying to get at him for this. And so the question here asked by the disciples and assumed by many other people who would have walked past this poor blind man was, who is at fault for this man's sin? Either God's judgment was upon his parents for some heinous sin that they've committed, and so because God's so angry at their sin, they've made their child blind, or he sinned in some great way. But he was born blind, so what great sin did he do? And that's what they're asking. Like, how is he at fault here? Did God see a future sin that he committed? Or some taught back then that if a, if a pregnant woman came in to worship at a, at a temple to a false god, that God would see that the little baby in the womb was also worshiping that false god? And so all these bad ideas are coming out. And here's the reality. This is the fact uh, that we as Christians must embrace. Not all suffering is a result of someone's sin. That's just the bottom line. Not all suffering is a result of someone's sin. Yes, I mean, if we go far enough, it's Adam and Eve in the fall of the garden. Uh, that, that all sin is because of that, or all suffering is because of that, ultimately. We are broken because of the fall. But not all our suffering is because God is displeased with us in some way. 
sicknesses and losses and, and brokenness. It's not all because God is angry. And we need to uh, remind ourselves of these truths. So often in, in how we pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, we pray that you would alleviate them of these things. You would remove this trial that they're going through. You would end it. And we pray that for ourselves too, right? God, take this away from me. And we're reminded of Paul. God, take this away from me. Three times. And God says, no, this is what I have for you. This is for you. I give you this on purpose. Not because of your sin, but because of some greater purpose. For my glory, uh, ultimately. And again, the book of Job is a deep wrestle with this issue about suffering. And, And many commentators try to work through Job and find Job's sin. But that's not how you're supposed to read Job. What you're meant to do with it is this. Job was righteous. Job suffered. Job wasn't suffering because of his sin. God is good and God is sovereign in Job's sin. And ultimately, God is beyond our comprehension. And his plans and his, what he's doing in the world is beyond us. We can't fully fathom it. And so we're left with the same trouble here in John 9. Why is this man blind? What sin was committed here? And Jesus responds in a way that we're not fully satisfied with. I'll be honest with you. I'm not fully satisfied with the answer. Okay, I want, I want more, but I have to embrace, I have to understand that Jesus is above my comprehension, that God works beyond my uh, abilities and beyond my understandings. And Jesus simply says, this man has been blind all of his life so that I would come along, heal him, and, get the, and God would get the glory. Now, that doesn't sit well with me as a human being, that I would go through all of this suffering so that, so that one day God would heal this blind man. What about all those years of blindness? What about all those years that have been stolen from him? But I have to understand, God is good, and God is sovereign, and God is beyond my comprehension. And that is how often God works in our lives. He allows suffering in our lives for our good, and for his glory. Do I enjoy suffering? No. Would I put it on the, you know, when you're, when you're on holiday somewhere and you can tick the box of all the food you want when you, when you wake up? Would I tick suffering? That's what I want today? Absolutely not. But God is using it for his glory. God is using it for our good. And that's what's happening here with this blind man as well. And just again, shortly, Paul asks for this thorn in the flesh to be removed. And God says, no. God could have ended Paul's suffering. God could have taken it away, but he didn't. And why did did God not do that to Paul? And the answer is this, if we can boil it all down, because he loved Paul and he knew what was best for Paul. That's why. And Paul, God, if you love me, you would take it away. It's because I love you that you have it. It's because I know what's best for you. That this is what you're going through. And, and to be honest, this is the tension that we have to settle in our hearts. That we might not get the answer to the question, why am I suffering in this way? And instead, we have to rest in the answer to the question, who is God in my suffering? Who is he in my suffering? And again, we don't judge God based on our suffering. We base our suffering upon who God is. We have to make sure that the character of God is the lens through which we view our suffering, rather than our suffering being the lens through which we view the character of God. has to be. You know, if you allow your suffering to be the lens through which you view God, do you know what's going to happen? Doubt and bitterness, disgruntlement, and eventually hatred toward God and unbelief toward him. 
and a pulling away from him, if we begin to view God through the lens of suffering rather than through viewing our suffering through the lens of God's character. That's what we must uh, do. But this is, I'm saying all this because this question came up and then, and then we get to the rest of it. Uh, but Jesus says here that, that it's because I'm about to do God's works, that the works of God should be revealed in him. That's why this young man here has been born blind. That's why he's been blind all of his life so that God uh, would work in his life and, God, and, and people would see that. Jesus says that he's the light of the world. He's the light and he must continue to do the work of the light, which is to confine the darkness. By, by, by allowing the light uh, to come. So we come down to, to verse 6, just skipping through a little bit. And it says here, he spat on the ground, he made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. Now, there's, there's differences of opinion here. I don't know what John believes, but some people believe that this was dirt and the spit of Jesus molded into an eye. No, not everyone believes that because Jesus is the word of God. And in Genesis chapter one, he says, let there be men and women in my image. And he, he brought up dirt and he breathed into it. And then we had human beings. You and I are just dirt. That's all we are. And then he had, there's this man who's blind. And Jesus takes dirt, which we're made of, and puts it on his eye. And then he's healed by, by the dirt. He, God is able to do that. God is able to take dirt and give life. God is able to take dirt and make blind people see. Or if you're going to be persuaded that direction, God is able to take dirt and make an eyeball and put it in someone's head for the first time in their entire lives. So whatever you take from that one, Jesus adds dirt and saliva to a man's eye, goes and tells him to wash in the pool, and the man goes, does this, and he comes back. It says in verse 7, he came back and he could see. He came back seeing. And Questy read it today, Psalm 146, verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And we had it a few readings ago, but Isaiah 42, again, it also talks about how the Messiah would come and open up the eyes of the blind. So here's God, Messiah, opening the eyes of the blind. The great evidence that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the Messiah. And the next thing we see then is the bewilderment in verse 8 to verse 12. This, this man here was a common piece of furniture in the area. Like, they know this guy. This is someone who's always in the same area uh, begging. And that, I'm sure if you, if you know the city uh, of Bath well, uh, you'll know sometimes, sadly, where some of the homeless people are. And you get to recognize them. And you get to see, and you're like, I know that one. I, I, he used these over here, and now he's over there. And, and you know if you turn this corner, there's going to be a few people there. And you begin to remember and recognize these people. And that's what this man was. He was just a piece of the furniture there. In Sunderland, we had the guys who uh, were homeless, the one who pretended to play the instrument. And for about 30 minutes, he would pretend to practice on the harmonica. He would like, he'd be like warming himself up. He'd go, they do this and, and he'd keep doing that. And people would walk by because they're not stopping. And they would think, oh, I'll give him some money. He's just get, I'll not be able to hear, but I'll give him something. And if you stood there for half an hour, you're like, this guy's never going to play the harmonica ever. And he never did. And there's another guy who would build a dog out of sand. And uh, every day he would bring this, this pre-made dog that had been made out of clay. And he would put sand over the top of it. And then he would just sit there and pretend that he was carving the dog. Pre-carved. And he would pretend 
But nobody would wait long enough to see if he was doing anything. Just They would just see him doing it. Like, oh, he's making a cool dog. Here's some money. But if you knew him, like if we, we would walk by almost every day and be like, this guy never plays the harmonica. And he never does anything with that dog. Just a piece of the furniture, a piece of, of sandal, and you know where he'll be. And that's what this man is. This blind man who is sitting here blind every single day, begging. And it says in verse 8, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind. Is not this he who sat and begged? That's that guy. And yet he's walking around and he can see. And I love the answer that's given here. When he says in verse 9, some said, this is him. And others said, he's like him. But it it can't be him. It looks a lot like him, but it can't be him. And the man responds, that's really me. And, and that's so beautiful because once a person has been touched by Jesus, there should be such a change. When Jesus touches a human life, when he touches a soul, when he begins that work of transformation, and he continues that work of transformation, there's such a change in them that although they're recognizable, they aren't really recognizable. It's, it's them, but they're different. It's them, but there's, they're not the same as they were. It's them, but they're different somehow. And that should be true of our lives, that we've been touched by Christ, and we should be different. And we should look back 10 years, if you've met someone, if, if you knew someone 10 years ago, and they just meet you today for the first time in 10 years, it should be like, it's you, but you're different. You're, you're growing. You're, you're, you're changed. There's more joy. There's more peace. There's more gentleness. There's more patience. There's more kindness as Christ continues to work in our lives. Touched by him and transformed. It's him. But it can't be him. He's different. So they ask this question. How are your eyes opened in verse 10? How are your eyes opened? And the, the simple answer. A man called Jesus. A man called Jesus. In verse 12 they ask him. And where is this man? And he doesn't know. So we have the bewilderment after the miracles. Uh, the miracle of the eye. And then we come to the bo-bo-bo moment, when we have the Pharisees in verse 13 to verse 34, and we see some conversations taking place. The man is brought to the religious leaders. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. And the problem was, in verse 14, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And again, Jesus is breaking the categories. Jesus is claimed to be God. God can do what he wants on the Sabbath day. And so God can heal someone's eyes. And, and at this moment, you would think the Pharisees would be like, man, he healed the guy's eyes. No one's ever done that. This must be the one that we're waiting for. But they're just like the dwarves. They're, they're, they're refusing to believe. And there's a division. The Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others amongst them, these Jewish leaders said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And they said to the, the blind man in verse 17 as well, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And the blind man, I love, the, the blind man is like the logic person, right? The blind man's like, like, I was blind. Some guy came and said, wash my eyes. 
I went and washed my eyes and now I can see. He's a prophet. Like, I don't, that's all I can come up with. And the Jewish leaders who know the law of Moses back to front are like, no way. He can't be from God. There's no way. And the guy's like, well, I'm blind. Now I can see. So the next thing that happens is the parents are brought in. Verse 18 to verse 23. And the, the Jewish leaders uh, says that they would not believe until this moment, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. They asked the question, is this your son who you, who you say was born blind and how does he see? Is this your son who is blind? Now how does he see? And they can only answer the first question. This is our son. We have no idea how he could see. We, we were not there. We we're not part of this. We don't know uh, what took place here. And his parents answered, we know that it is our son, that he was born blind. By what means he now sees, we do not know. Who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, he will speak for himself. And this is really tragic. In verse 22, it tells us why they said that. The, Jews were so, the Jewish leaders were so refusing to believe that if someone had said, this must be the Messiah, this must be the Christ, that they would be immediately removed from the synagogue. And to be removed from the synagogue back then, it's not just to be like removed from the church, which would be bad enough to put under church discipline, but it would be removed from society. Because the synagogue was the hub, it was the center of society. You would be totally isolated if you had said that this man who can heal people's eyeballs is the Messiah. So even after the miracles of John 2 and John 5, they would not believe And you meet people in your life, and I've met people in my life who say, if this thing happened, then I would believe. When I did that debate a few weeks ago there, thank you so much for praying, the man said, I would believe if a man with no limb grew a limb, then I would believe. Do you know what came into my head at that moment? This miracle. I'm like, no, you wouldn't. A blind man got his sight, and they refused to believe. A man who'd never walked for 38 years was able to walk. And they refused to believe. A man rose from the dead. And they refused to believe. So I don't believe you. I told him, you already believe in God. I don't believe you that have an arm. And he actually said, this is what he said. It's amazing. He said, I'm 99% sure that God doesn't exist. Which is a lie. Because God says he knows. But anyway. 99% sure that God doesn't exist. If a man's limb was to grow out of his arm. Like where his arm had been. I would move from 99% sure to 81% sure. That's what, you would watch a limb grow out of a man and say, still 81% unsure that God exists, right? It's the heart that refuses to believe the evidence. It's the dwarves sitting in the beauty with all the beautiful things saying, this is a dusty little stable. We will not be brought in. We will not be hooked. We will not be tricked. So they're intimidating the people in verse 22. They're so against Jesus that that they're now using intimidation and threatening people with excommunication if they said that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, a rejection of the whole community, shunned by neighbors and shunned by society. If all you said was, my son was blind and he healed him, you would be gone. There they are with their blind son from birth, now looking them in the eye. Right, Your blind son is looking you in the eye. And yet they're being forced to not speak up for what happened there. So they say, he is of age, ask him. And we come back then to verse 24, uh, to verse 34, this second interview. They called again the man who was blind. This is a, this is a tribunal. 
This is like a, a sentence. This is, this is a courtroom scenario here. Right? You, walk, you go away. You sit in that other room and wait till I get back to you. And the blind man's like, all I did was sit here blind and I can see and I'm being, I'm being like sentenced for something here. Well, we get to the second part in verse 24 to 34. And they say, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And what they're saying is, stop lying. Stop giving this man credit for something he did not do. Tell us what really happened. Give glory to God and tell us what really happened there. And the man's response, again with this just fresh logic of John's gospel. If he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind half an hour ago. And now I can see. That's all I know. Like, I, I can't, I, I, that's all I can figure out in my head. And he gives them this incredible piece of logic. Again, they, they ask this question, what did he do? Uh, what did he do to, to give you sight? How did he open your eyes? He says, I already told you that. Remember, they, they, this has already been answered. And this is like Jesus again, when they, they keep asking, who's your father? Who's your father? Who do you say that you are? Who do you say that you are? And Jesus keeps saying, I've told you these things. It's not more information you need. You don't need more. I've told you all there is. But you refuse to believe these things. And they ask the question, why do you want me to keep telling you? Do you want to become his disciples? Do you want to follow Jesus? And they begin to insult him and slander him. And they to claim to be the followers of Moses. But Jesus has already told us they're not the followers of Moses. If they were truly the followers of Moses, they would have become the followers of Jesus. So we get to this uh, deeply theological conclusion. A blind man who is not trained in the, the schools that these men are schooled in. And listen to just his sweet, fresh logic. Why this is a marvelous thing. That you do not know where he's from, this Jesus person, and yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, we know he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Just pure logic. It's just sweet logic. God hears the prayers of the righteous, not those of the rebels. No one has ever made a blind man see before, not ever. Yet here I am, a blind man who can now see. Surely this man is a righteous man. Surely this man comes from God. That, that's just logic. Okay? But these men, as we've been looking at, are so refusing to believe. And in their darkness, and in the pride, and the hatred of their hearts, they tell him, you're utterly born in sin, and yet you want to teach us. Do you see the disgusting arrogance of these men here in verse 34? You are completely born in sin, and are you teaching us? They are claiming to not be like this man. You're a filthy sinner. We are the righteous Pharisees. We're not like you. And you down there, you little peasant blind person, you filthy sinner, you think you could teach us. And once again, you're getting a glimpse as to why these men will not receive Christ. The arrogance that they hold to. They're claiming to not be like him. And so they cast them out. This blind man who can now see is cast out simply for saying, uh, he healed me. God hears the prayers of the righteous. No one's ever been able to do that before. He must be from God. And so they cast them out in their anger. In verse 34. 
And then the final thing we get to then is the Son of Man or the Son of God, verse 35 to verse 41. Jesus heard they cast them out, and he went and he found him, and he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Or in our translation, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Do you see the difference between this man and the religious leaders? I, I want to believe. I'm already primed. I'm like so prepped right now to believe. Just show me who he is and I'll believe him. And these are some of my favorite words of Jesus. You have seen him. How long has this man had his sight for? And Jesus says, you've been blind all your life, but you've already seen the Messiah. And he's speaking to you right now. And the man believes. It's so beautiful. I just love the, that you have seen him. And this hour of talking to the religious leaders, and you've seen your mom and dad, and you've seen your neighbors in the crowds who normally see you, and you've also, in that short amount of time, you have seen the Messiah as well. You have seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And he said this, Lord, curios, I believed. And it's the first time recorded in John's gospel, he worshipped him. God-man, the God and the Messiah the Savior and the Creator. I believe that you are curious. I believe that you're the Son of Man, the Son of God, and I worship you. What a beautiful response uh, that this man has. It's like the woman of Samaria. You see the differences here? The, the people who are not expected to come to Jesus. The woman of Samaria, I that speaks to you am he, I believe. And then this man, who's born blind, uh, all of his life blind, I believe, and I I worship you. The woman caught in adultery. Lord, no one condemns me. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This man's journey from physical blindness to sight is a symbol of his spiritual one as well. All in one day, in one short amount of time, in a few hours, he has come from darkness to light, both physically, spiritually, and eternally. What a day for this man. And what a happy day uh, from going from blind to seeing, to go from spiritual darkness to sight, to go from death to eternal life because of one person that he met, the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in verse 39 onwards, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we the ones you're speaking about? Are we these blind people that you're talking about? And Jesus responds in verse 41, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, and therefore your sin remains. Jesus explains, I have come to make a division. I've come to divide the world between those who believe and those who won't believe. And the question of blindness. To receive Jesus was to receive the light of the world. To reject him was to reject the light. To close your eyes and to become blind and stay in your blindness. So in seeing, they see. In saying these things, they're saying this. It's to say, we don't need someone to open our eyes. If you say here in verse 41, we see. What they're saying is, we don't need the light of the world. We don't need someone to open our eyes. We're not in darkness. We don't need the Messiah. And so as a consequence, 
They remain blind. They remain in their sin. And they remain in darkness. Just like those dwarfs. All they would have to do was to come and submit to Aslan. But the refusal to do that keeps them locked in the darkness of their minds. The conclusion of all of this then this evening is Jesus is God. And Jesus is Messiah. And he's worthy of worship. And Jesus is light. Bringing people out of spiritual blindness and spiritual darkness to all those who will come to him. But I just want to remind us to go back to the start again of John 9 as we, as we draw to a close. Uh, through our suffering, to encourage us to trust God's character through your suffering. And allow it to be your rest in the midst of it all. Even when you don't understand the reasons why we're suffering. Like this poor blind man, of all his life he never had an answer. But in the moment he met Jesus, he probably didn't have the question anymore either. Because he'd seen Jesus. And that was enough for him. And just knowing that one day we'll see him. And one day we'll gaze upon his face. And one day we'll not have the questions anymore. Because we're either, either we'll have the answers. And we'll be satisfied with the answers. Or we'll have him. And we'll be satisfied with him. Jesus, the opener of eyes. Jesus, our savior and our God. He works all things for the glory of his father and the good of his people. Amen.